I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, like many of you, perhaps, or at least some of you here this morning, um, I did not start really digging into the Word of God, and in particular start digging into the Psalms, um, until I was in college. And uh, that moment was because I became a Christian uh, in high school, and beginning and developing that relationship with Christ eventually drove me to the Word. Um, but there are also specific circumstances that really drove me even particularly uh, to the Psalms. Uh, in college, I had a few moments of crisis, um, and, and I air quote my crisis because the one in particular that drove me to the Psalms, at least initially, was a girl who dumped me. And I was upset about that, and it hurt my feelings, and I was angry. Don't laugh, it still hurts a little bit. <clears throat> um, even though that particular relationship, if I'm being honest, lasted only two weeks, um, <laughs> I was still uh, devastated. I was hurting. And um, so there I was in the fall of 2003, found myself reading Psalm 34, this very psalm. And something jumped off the page at me. It was this word in the middle of the psalm, radiant. That those who look to God, that they are radiant. And even though I was uh, upset in that moment, I loved, I was immediately drawn to this idea that regardless of circumstances, that the faces of those who look to God are radiant. Fast forward um, to this week. 
Uh, every once in a while, one of us as pastors will get a call and be asked to come up and, and visit someone who's, who's uh, serving time in our Brevard County Jail. So I got a call like that this week and, and got to go up and visit a brother. And so I'm walking uh, towards the facility. I get through security. I'm walking down various hallways. And I got to tell you, I saw a number of faces. And as is not surprising, considering the circumstances, none of those faces were particularly uh, radiant. Uh, there was anger, there was frustration, there was sadness, there was bitterness to be uh, for sure. Um, but I went down one particular hall, and the first hall that had a door that had glass in it that I could actually see through, I look through that window, and I see, praise God, another brother in Christ from our church. I see Bill Ashcraft, and Bill Ashcraft is leading a Bible study in the Brevard County Jail. And I got to tell you, his face was radiant. And I look around the room, I can see around the room, and there's other guys in there who are joining him, studying the Word of God while in jail, and despite their circumstance, their faces were radiant. It's the perfect picture of what Psalm 34 illustrates for us, that when we have Christ, our lives are changed. Now, over the course of the summer, you obviously already have heard a variety pack of different types of sermons, or or rather, types of psalms. And we haven't experienced all of them yet, but among them there are things like lament psalms that we looked at. There are wisdom psalms. There are thanksgiving and praise psalms. There's messianic psalms that very particularly point us to Jesus who is coming. There are ascent psalms that were the psalms that pilgrims would sing in in praise as they headed to Jerusalem for worship. There are royal psalms that point us towards king, God, the king. And there's even imprecatory psalms where the psalmist cries out to God for, to bring judgment against people um, that are attacking them. Psalm 34, though, is two things. The very first half is a psalm of both praise and thanksgiving. And then it shifts suddenly, and the second half is a psalm of wisdom. Um, One of the unique features of this particular psalm, it only happens in about five or six psalms out of the total 150, is that this psalm is an acrostic poem, meaning that each sentence or each verse of the psalm begins in order with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so in a very real way, what this psalm is, is the ABCs of the Christian life. Or if you're a good Hebrew, then it is the, the good, the, the Aleph Beit Gimel of the Christian life. And it guides us and points out to us what it means to walk with God. And so this morning, I just want to give you from this psalm four applications as to what it means to be a follower of God. And those four are this. Followers of God exalt his name together. They radiate his glory always. They submit to his way of life and they trust his redeeming salvation. So number one, followers of God exalt his name together. And we get this from verses one through three. Hear the scripture one more time. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He says, I will praise Continually, at all times, literally means at every time, at every opportunity. This is why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. And this is what really began to knock my socks off in college, was this idea that beyond my issues was an opportunity to live a life characterized by praise and thankfulness to God. And to be honest, in a very real way, up to that point in my life, I would say, looking back, and if you knew me, you'll probably agree, that my life tended to be more negativity, sarcasm, pride, 
and, and self-absorption. But as I began to experience the Psalms, I began to see here this idea of something far better. So he says praise continually. Um, it's worth asking a question. What can you not stop talking about? To put it a little bit more crass, what can you just not shut up about talking about? Um, the scripture here gives us a really cool picture. Chances are the things that you can't help but talk about are probably the things that you really, really love. I would love for us to find out as a church, just make it our personal goal and challenge, is it possible to talk about and to praise God too much? All right, let's push that line. Let's see how far we can take it. I would love, I want us to see, I want to see us as a church. I want to see us as a, as a family. I want to see me as an individual, each one of us, grow in that area of just being able to be known for praising God, for giving Him thanks at all times, to the point of irritation that people are like, when I see that person, I know I'm going to be drawn to them because of the excitement and the joy in their life. I praise God because we've got a lot of people, and you know who they are in our congregation who are just that, that they, they exude the joy and the thankfulness of the Lord. And you know when you see them, you're going to hear some sort of a story about how good God is in their life. The scripture says, I will boast in the Lord and not in myself. See, the praise-filled life always gives glory to God. It's not about me right? It's not about what I have done. It's about what he has done. Paul picks up the same idea in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. It seems odd. It seems counterintuitive. Why would he do that? Because as he shows and pours out his weaknesses by faith and with joy, he's able to show more clearly God's strength. That when he fails, God has got it. And by doing so, he gives praise to God. I think that you and I will find it shocking. And that the people around us in every sphere of life will be blown away. If we live a life in a culture, we live in this culture, right, that is completely me first. We live in a culture that is completely my agenda, my way. We live in a culture that demands recognition. We live in a culture of arrogance. And if you come in giving praise to someone else, giving praise to God, people are going to stand up and take notice. Uh, many of you may find yourself in a sphere, maybe it's a job that you feel like legitimately so, there are a lot of barriers to you being able to just frankly and clearly share the good news of the gospel. You know that they don't want to hear it, and it might actually cost you your job. But I would challenge you with the idea that maybe this is a way to move forward in that. That when good things happen, when bad things happen, that you can express your thankfulness to God the way that he is watching over you, watching over a particular situation. How do you respond when God does something cool? How do you respond when someone is, is physically healed from, from sickness? How do you respond when you get a, a new job? How do you respond? In our case, we just got a new house. We're so thankful. We praise God for that new house. Um, I just posted on Facebook a couple days ago, I am praising God and thankful because my car broke down. But here's the good news. It broke down in my driveway. <laughs> I had literally just driven from the north end of the county down on 95, and of all the places that it could have broken down, I coasted gently into our driveway. 
I thank God for that. When moments like that happen, when, you're, when your kids succeed, do you praise God? When your prayers are answered, do you out loud communicate to people, thank God? When you personally accomplish something, does the glory go to God? That's why he goes on to say, let us exalt his name together. It's not always this way, but in this particular case, David begins his praise, and he is literally physically alone, and so he continues by saying, let's do it together. He invites other people so that they can corporately gather and praise God together. And that makes a lot of sense because the person who has experienced the mercy of God, they can't help but talk about it, and they can't help but invite people into that same experience and relationship with God, and they can't help but wind up praising God together for what God is doing in their lives. Go back a couple of Psalms to Psalm 22 and verse 22. It says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. That's us. That's this, the congregation. He wants to praise God together. You know, at the beginning of this week, I I was going to share with you uh, and study from Psalm chapter 73, which is another one of my my favorite psalms. Um, But Psalm 73 has the same tone as the one we looked at a couple weeks ago, and I figured you guys could use a break from the lament psalms and the ongoing barrage of difficult circumstances. But I'm going to give you the fast-forward version, because in Psalm 73, the psalmist cries out to God, and he, he comes back with that same very real question of, why do bad things happen to good people like me? And for 16 verses, he goes on, and then it gets worse, because it says, why, God, do good things always happen to bad people? He's frustrated, and he doesn't feel like he has an answer, but listen to where the psalmist goes. This is verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Yeah, no kidding. But look at how he resolves it. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. It was oppressive to me until I gathered, in his case, the temple, in our case, the church, until I came together in the presence of God, in the presence of his people, and laid my life down in worship. I didn't get answers to the questions. I got the Spirit of God, and it helped. This is just one of a multitude of reasons why church matters why we here together, why it matters, why it's important, because we get to remember together in good times and in bad times the goodness, the greatness, the love of God. That psalm, Psalm 73, it ends, verse 25 and 26, some of my favorite verses, my my life verse. Um, It says this, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, Guys, they will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen? Number two, followers of God radiate his glory always. We get this from verses four through six. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
You know, just that little snippet of the psalm, I see four very clear steps. One, he has trouble. Two, he prays. Three, God delivers. Four, his face is radiant. Sometimes it really is just that simple and that good. What's he being delivered from? He uses the word fears here. The word for fears here means a couple of things. It literally means terrors. This is not small stuff. It means horrors. It means things like shame, guilt, the unknown. That's why he describes himself as this poor man. And we know from the scripture that this is the lowest point in David's life, the psalmist here, uh, to date. We know that because if you go to the top of your scripture seat, you'll see a little title. And the title says this, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And you may read that and you go, oh, okay, that, what? (laughs) What do you mean? This is what it means. That title gives us the clue that we need to know that what is happening here is 1 Samuel chapter 21. And so if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, we get the full story, and it is essentially this. David has just lost his best friend in the world, Jonathan. Part of the reason for that is Jonathan's dad, King Saul, king of Israel, has decided to make it his personal mission to kill David. Not a good day so far. So as King Saul is out to kill him, David is on the run. David has no weapons, we're told by scripture. He has nobody with him, no bodyguard. He also has no food. And that is the situation where Psalm 34 begins to arise. And so eventually 1 Samuel 21 tells us that he finds himself among the Philistines. You heard of them? Not friends, right? So he is now among the Philistines before King Achish, who is the king or the Abimelech, of Gath. You ever heard of Gath? Does that ring a bell? All you Old Testament scholars. So Gath, maybe this will ring a bell. Gath was the hometown of another Philistine by the name of Goliath. Heard of him? Remember that little story a couple chapters earlier? This guy David, this guy Goliath. David throws a rock. It hits Goliath in the forehead. His face is no longer radiant. It's filled with blood. He falls over. He dies. End of story. (laughs) David's not real popular in Philistia. He's not real popular in Gath, and he finds himself before the king of Goliath, the guy who died. Could it get any worse? And so it is in that moment that David changed his behavior, meaning in order to get out of this situation, he literally fakes being crazy. And in the most awesome verse in all of scripture, it says that he let the spittle run down his beard. In other words... He's foaming at the mouth, putting on the best show that he can, and it works because God protects him, and King Achis literally says, I got enough crazies running around Philistia, get him out of here. And he is saved. Soon after, he finds himself in a place called the Cave of Agilum. Not exactly a bed and breakfast, right? And there he is, and he writes Psalm 34. That's his situation. He's praising God even though his circumstances have not completely changed. Has he been delivered? Yes. Is his life still a wreck? Yes. See, being delivered does not necessarily mean exemption from pain. But what it does mean is that his face was radiant. He trusted in God, who he knew would provide. 
There's that word, radiant. I've used it a lot, I should probably define it. Um, It literally just means shining, right? Glowing brightly is to be radiant. And it had an idea as to how I could help you understand this idea. I could have you, A, look directly in the sun this morning for 19 seconds and just absorb what it means to be radiant, or I could have you watch this video clip so you more clearly understand radiance. Now, yeah, we can clap for them. If you know what that is, then you are cool. (laughs) That is the Newsboys. In 1994, they penned a little song called Shine. And it's based on one particular verse in Scripture. If you hadn't connected the dots yet, let me do that for you. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. And it says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love that idea. That's the idea of radiate. And it's way better than looking at the sun for 19 seconds. Who wants to do that? This idea of radiant, radiance in the face is not unique to Psalm 34. Another guy by the name of Moses does it in the Old Testament. We're told in Exodus chapter 34 that Moses goes up on the mountain and he talks with God. He literally speaks face to face with the Lord and he comes down with the Ten Commandments and it says that when he came down, his face glowed, that his face was radiant. You know, it doesn't give us that detail on some of the other major characters of the Bible, but I can imagine it was probably similar when a guy like Elijah sees the fire of God come down and burn up the sacrifice and prove to the enemies of God that God is the one true God. I'll bet Elijah's face was radiant. I'll bet when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fiery furnace and not one hair of their head was singed, I'll bet that in a whole different kind of way, their faces were radiant in amazement for what God had just done. I'll bet when Daniel hung out with lions in the den overnight, I just read that story to my kids, right? Every picture of Daniel in the lion's den, it's like cute little happy lions, cuddly lions, cuddly Daniel, hanging out, doing their thing. That's not what it is, right? It's vicious, hungry lions that would tear you apart in a second, and yet in the morning, I bet, in that cave, Daniel's face was radiant. It makes me think of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. They're beaten and scourged and thrown into a disgusting prison, and at midnight, the scripture says that they were heard singing psalms and hymns and praises to God in the darkness with shackles on their hands and feet. I'll bet their faces in the darkness were radiant. The consistent theme through all of those is that their circumstances were still going on. They were in the midst of their hurt and their suffering, but God was with them, and like Psalm 34, their faces were radiant. It's revolutionary. That's what it began to do in my life, to realize that that radiance is not tied to circumstances. Radiance is tied to who God is. You see the difference? That's why it says, this poor man 
I can get on board with that. This poor man had a face that radiated the glory and the goodness of God, regardless of circumstances. Number three, we transition from praise to to wisdom. It says followers of God submit to his way of life. And we get this from verses 7 through 16. Let me read to you just verses 7 and 8 and then also verse 11. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. A couple of really important things going on here. The first thing that we get is it says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The perfect picture of this comes a few years after David writes his psalm. It shows up in 2 Kings chapter 6 with a guy named Elisha, not Elijah. And Elisha and his servant wake up one morning, and his servant goes outside to get a drink of water from the well. And as he scans around the hills, he realizes something. He realizes that the entire enemy Aramean army is on the hills ready to attack. They have no defense, no help. So the servant runs back inside and says to Elisha, do you realize what's going on? The entire army is out there. They're waiting to kill us. And Elisha says this, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays. And he asked, Lord, would you open my servant's eyes so that he can see things the way that you have allowed me to see things? And the scripture says that as the servant could see, yes, he could still see the Aramean army surrounding them, but a little bit higher and a whole lot bigger, he saw another army. And it was the angels of the Lord in an army waiting to destroy the enemy. And that day, Elisha and the servant were saved. You got to understand, it does not say that sort of promise is only for Elisha or only for people in the Old Testament. It says specifically that that level of promise, that the army of the Lord protects all those who fear him. Does that make you want to fear him? I want in. It says the fear of the Lord. This idea, the fear of the Lord, um, is really what bookends all of the, the Proverbs and in particular in a lot of psalms as well. Uh, Here in our psalm, the word fear related to the fear of the Lord shows up four times, just in verses 7 through 11. The idea kicks off in Proverbs chapter 1, though, when it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, let's be real clear. This is a whole different kind of fear than what David was talking about at the beginning. This is not horrors of God. This is not terrors of God. The best way that I can describe to you this type of fear is this. Joyfully submitting to his way of life. Joyfully submitting to his way of life. That is, experiencing God's deliverance leads us to fear or to obey him because we recognize that he is good, that he can do life way better than I can, that I trust him to figure things out way more than I trust me to figure things out. 
That's why he goes on to say, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is the invitation that we offer to all people on earth who have never experienced the love and the grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ. We say, just come and try it. Just give it a taste and you will see that the Lord is good. He's the best. Peter picks up this exact same idea and connects the dots for us a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's very, very common, very well-known verse. Like newborn infants, speaking of, of young Christians, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's something about coming to experience for the first time in a radical way, the love and the goodness of God, where you say, everything else that I've ever tried before has left me wanting, and so I will chase hard after him. I submit to his way of life. Listen to verses 12 through 16 on this same idea. He says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Um, me. <laughs> I'll take that. Good days, easy days, long days, good healthy life. Yeah, I'm in. I'll take one of those. He's asking the question, and then he explains how to get there. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord, radiant face is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. If you want to know practically what does the fear of the Lord look like, verses 12 through 16 is a pretty good definition to begin to consider. He keeps it real simple. Once again, you want to have a good life? You want to have a happy life? Turn from evil. Turn to the face of God. You may say, that seems overly simplified. It sounds moralistic. Here's what he's doing. He's going back to the very beginning of Scripture because remember in the first couple chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, Satan, shows up and he speaks a terrible, terrible lie that Adam and Eve ultimately decide to believe. And the lie was very simple. He said, listen, if you do things your way and if you disobey God, life will get better. It's a lie. It was a lie then. It was a lie when Psalm 34 was written. It's a lie today, and it'll be a lie again tomorrow. The scripture is very clear. Obey God. Things will go much better than if you disobey the Lord. He makes it real personal. He says his eyes, his ears, his face is towards those who obey, who follow him. It makes me think of a promise like Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We cling to promises like that, that God is for his people. But the flip side is also true. It says very clearly the opposite, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That those who reject God, those who reject his word, those who reject his truth, those who reject relationship with the one true God of the universe are exiled, estranged, ignored, forgotten, cut apart. If this passage or the Word of God ended right there, we would be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? Let's look at number four together. Followers of God trust His redeeming salvation. 
We get this picture in particular from, from the final five verses, verses 17 through 22. It says this, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. It's an interesting little verse in there, isn't there? This is not a throwaway phrase. He says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. What's that mean? Let's go back a little further in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 12. Israel has been enslaved by Egypt for 430 years. And now God is on the move and he is bringing freedom to his people, Israel. And so he does that by sending 10 plagues, awful things that initially affect both Israel and Egypt, but towards the end affects only Egypt and is forcing the Pharaoh to let God's people go. The 10th plague is the worst plague. And as you recall, it is the angel of death. And the task of the angel of death is to kill every firstborn in the land with one exception. God speaks through Moses to his people Israel and he gives them a very specific instruction. He says, I want you to go and take a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb. I want you to slaughter that lamb and I want you to take the blood of that lamb and mark your doorposts. And in marking your doorposts with the blood of the spotless lamb, when the angel of death comes that night, when he sees the blood of the lamb, he will not bring judgment, he will not bring destruction, rather he will literally pass over. To this day, Israel continues to celebrate the Passover. We get a little detail in there though. Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 says this, do not break any of the bones of the lamb. Why would he say that? Let's go to New Testament. John chapter 19 is one of the places where we get the entire picture from beginning to end of the crucifixion of the Savior, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Listen, at the end of this whole story, he, he has been beaten and brutalized, humiliated. He gives up his life because they could not take it, and he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And in that moment, John writes this in chapter 19, verse 36. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Not one of the sacrificial spotless lamb's bones will be broken. See what he's doing? He's telling the Israelites the same things then that he's telling us now. That is a thousand years before Jesus, the son of God, comes to earth. In Psalm 34, we are being telegraphed the fact that the Messiah, King, and Savior is going to come and he's going to save his people from their sins. And he gives us even this detail that the bones of the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, will not be broken. Go back to that third point for just a second. Here's the truth. Do good, avoid evil, obey all the rules. I fail every single day. Who among us can raise a hand and say, in my entire life, I have never committed a sin. 
I have never turned my back on God. (laughs) Not one of us, not one of us can make that claim because we all stand guilty. We all stand condemned, says the Psalms, before a holy and a righteous God. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We are separated from God because of our sin. That's why the Psalm here says that the wicked will perish. They stand condemned already. But that's not the end of the story, is it? You want to talk condemnation? Let's talk Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? There is therefore now no condemnation. The Lord redeems life, says the psalm. No one who takes refuge in God will be condemned, says the psalm. See, because Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. Jesus did for you what you would never want to do for yourself. You had no ability to do it yourself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly came to earth, lived the perfect life, no sin, and then went to a cross and died on that cross, a brutal death. It wasn't about him being brutalized. It was about him dying and taking the punishment for our sins, the punishment that we deserved. And then he rose again from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And on the third day, he was alive again, and he is alive even this day. He sits on the right hand of God the Father even at this moment, and one day he will return to judge. And you may think to yourself this morning, I have lived a pretty good life. I haven't done that many things wrong, and so maybe I'm okay. The scripture says otherwise. The scripture says, come to Jesus with all of your guilt and all of your sin. Ask for him to forgive you. Ask for him to take your sin upon himself. And he promises to always answer yes. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what happens in that moment? Your faces radiate. Brothers and sisters, let our faces, let our lives radiate the good news of Jesus. And if you have not experienced that this morning, why wait? Let today be the day. Come to Jesus even this morning. We would love to talk with you about that after the service. If you have questions, things that you want to know more about, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are good. You are great. One of the evidences of that is that your people, those who know you, it says their faces radiate, that they are no longer covered in shame. God, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save lost people, broken, sinful people, guilty people like me, like us. Father, would you continue to pour out your grace in this church, in this city, in this world, that more and more people might come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they might radiate forward the good news, the glory of Jesus. Father, I pray for your believers gathered here. Lord, there are many who are suffering. There are many who are struggling and experiencing exactly this word, Lord, this word for fear that means horrors and terrors of various kind. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit in the way that only it can come to comfort those who are afflicted among us. 
And God, I pray that in those moments that their faces might radiate, that despite their circumstances, whether they change or they don't change, whether healing comes or it doesn't come, that they would know that their eternal destiny is with you and that that might fill them with joy. Father, we cry out to you for that. Lord, I pray that you might make us vessels unto honor that would declare the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. Father, that the nations would come to you. Use us, we pray, for that purpose. Let us not be silent. Let our faces not grow dim. Let us be bright for you. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that you would make their lives uncomfortable until they find you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.